There you go. Four punch, five punch, six punch combination. Body shot, body shot. Bang, 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 bang. Telling him not to counter punch. Welcome, fight fans. It's time for the main event of the week. It's the Fight City Podcast, episode 25. I'm going to be joined today with Zachary Alapi of the Fight City. How are you tonight, Zach? I'm doing well, Alden. It's good to be back. It's good. It's been a pretty active week of boxing, uh, both in the States and in Canada. We'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, but first, let's talk about Friday night on the ESPN card featuring Richard Comey making the second defense of his IBF lightweight title, winning a eighth-round knockout against Raimundo Beltran, becoming the first man to stop Beltran in over 10 years. What did you make of Comey's performance? Yeah, I mean, you know, first of all, it was good to see him back after his injury. Um, I like Comey. He's an exciting fighter. He's got a lot of power. Um, he's a terribly nice guy, too. I've had, you know, been lucky enough to interview him a couple of times. Very humble um, very, you know, a lot of pride, uh, this Ghanaian uh, heritage and understanding of the history of that country's boxing, you know, it's pretty impressive. Um, he's a good champion. Uh, I think that he flashed his power. His managing of distance, though, was pretty abysmal, I thought, in this fight. And I don't know if it was like a desire to really punctuate his performance, especially hurting Beltran and knocking him down so early. But it just seemed like he would do well. He'd get him hurt or knock him down. And then he'd kind of just flail around and with bigger fights looming, major cause for concern, I think. Yeah, uh, the big fight looming that seems like an inevitability if Teofimo Lopez wins his IBF Eliminator July 19th is that fight itself against one of the hottest prospects in the sport, Teofimo Lopez. Uh, that would be quite a risk. And in many ways, it seems like Comey is the perfect fighter for Lopez to win a title against. I think we talked about this earlier. Uh, was there anything that you saw with Comey and Beltran uh, that would lead you to think that Comey brings some more dimension to the game than you would have anticipated prior? Um, in terms of a fight against Lopez, you mean? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think with Comey, the, uh, the, 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 the most intriguing thing going into a Lopez fight for me is you know, when I think back of his fight against Robert Easter, for example, you know, just the resolve and chin and stuff he showed in that like 12th round and his heart, um, he's going to need every ounce of that in order to survive against Lopez. And I think that that to me is the big um, variable is he, you know, we, we probably all kind of assume that he's tailor made for Lopez and that, you know, he could get you know, kind of starched by Lope, you know, with Lopez with his combination of athleticism, speed, and power. Mm. But if Comey can stand up to his punches a little better than we think, then you start to maybe ask some interesting questions of the young prospect. Hmm. Yeah, Comey definitely made a very gutsy appearance in his first title, uh, first title shot against Robert Easter back in I think it was 2016. Um, yeah, do you? Having having watched Comey, having interviewed him, do you think he's developed since those two losses in 2016 against Easter and uh, and Denis Shafikov with the trainer uh, under the tutelage of Andre Rozier since 2018? Is is he developing into a new fighter that might present new challenges to the rest of the lightweight division? 
I don't know about a new fighter. I mean, I think that uh, I think you have seen benefits. I mean, I think that just his, you know, title winning performance. And I mean, you know, granted level of opposition aside, I still think that everything was kind of anointed for him or set up for him to be anointed as the new champion. And there was a certain amount of pressure that came with that. And the, uh, uh, you know, the, the weight of his country's expectations too, given that, uh, you know, by the time when he won that vacant or when he won that title, uh, Ghana didn't have any current world champions mm. uh, with Dog Bay having just lost his belt. So I think like mentally and just the sharpness and focus there, uh, you saw it. I think to a large extent, he is the fighter that we've kind of known him to be. Um, I do kind of wonder, uh, you know, I'm curious to see what you think too about like some of the technical deficiencies he showed. If you thought that that was maybe kind of who he is or more of him getting swept up in the moment of this fight. Cause like you said, Beltran's a guy who hadn't been stopped in what'd you say a decade? Um, over a decade. Yeah. Over a decade, <laughs> really durable guy. And uh, you know, despite his advanced age to get a stoppage against him is no mean feat. So Comey, I feel like could smell it. And um, you know, with the platform he was fighting on and everything, maybe just a bit, uh, a bit overexcited. Yeah, he's very durable. He definitely carries his power well over the rounds. Uh, but it wasn't clear to me whether or not his knockout of Beltran was was Comey's punching power and and his uh, technical prowess, or just a combination of Beltran's age and yeah. and uh, veteran career. I mean, he's thirty eight. He's twenty year veteran. I didn't realize this until earlier that he's been fighting since nineteen ninety nine. Yeah. Uh, he almost has fifty fights. You know, he's 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 uh, he's definitely a worn fighter, and you know, he took a lot of punishment in his title losing effort against Jose Pedraza. So I don't know if he was mentally able to go back to the ringer. I mean, he didn't make the lightweight limit uh, for this fight. He came in overweight and he accepted it. Uh, so I'm not sure if he had uh, the same motivation to become a champion as he did when he was fighting for his citizenship not too long ago. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, that's true. I mean, I think the bottom line with Comey is that he's he is a top lightweight. He's a worthy belt holder, but I just don't see a path to victory against Lopez for him, frankly. Yeah. Well, Lopez will get a chance to shine on July 19th uh, near my hometown or my new hometown of Washington, D.C. He'll be fighting in the MGM National Harbor on ESPN uh, against Masayoshi Nakatani, a little-known 18-0 Japanese fighter who's very tall. Uh, might pose some problems that we don't know about because there's been little uh, little footage of Nakatani mm -hmm. at his best. Uh, there's just some YouTube clips of him in Japan. But, you know, he might be up for a surprisingly difficult fight. Maybe not. Uh, mm -hmm. Hopefully it's a chance for him to show some more dimension to his game because he's just Lopez is just blasting through opposition at lightweight. Uh, but we'll get a chance to see him July 19th, and at the very least, it'll anoint him the mandatory status for Richard Comey in a fight that mm -hmm. I would anticipate to happen later this year. Yeah. I hate to say it, and I'm totally guessing, and I have no real basis besides instinct, but mm -hmm. it seems like <laughs> almost like Comey has just been groomed for the likes of Lomachenko and yeah. Teofimo Lopez by top rank. I mean, yeah. I mean I'm, I'm sure... I'm sure they gotta have some respect for him that I'm not accounting for, but it just seems like everything about him. I mean, his first defense of the IBF title was supposed to be against Lomachenko. Uh, they gave him the Beltran fight, which was not a very easy first defense of the title, nonetheless, uh, on paper at least. 
Mm-hmm. And now one fight later, he's likely up going to be up against um, Teofimo Lopez. So I, I just can't help but to feel bad for the guy. <laughs> yeah, that, I'm glad. I'm glad you mentioned that because you know it might it might have sounded like I was being a bit hard on on Comey. I thought that overall it was like a really thrilling and like fun and 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 performance where he showed that he's got like exceptional power, yeah. uh, skills and stuff like that. So I like the guy. Like I root for the guy. He's a credit to the sport. All that kind of stuff. And yeah, it, it, it almost feels like he won the title and then he had basically had two options laid out in front of him with like no chance to even contemplate doing anything else. And quite frankly, he deserves better than that in a way, you know? Yeah. Um, so what my hope is, is that if Lopez wins this next fight as expected and they do meet, that Comey really pushes him to the brink, uh, you know, uh, at minimum. Uh, that's, yeah. that's what I would hope to see. Yeah, I mean, Comey, what, two months after he won the title, he was, or maybe even before he won the title against Chaniyev in February, he was already a tentative opponent in the Staples Center for Lomachenko yeah. uh, in April. So that's uh, <laughs> it's definitely better, not an easy route. After better get paid well, that's all I need to say. <laughs> <laughs> yep, so hopefully he makes a good showing against Lopez if Lopez gets past Nakatani later this month. On DAZN on Saturday, we had an interesting triple header of fights, uh, two championship fights, and also the comeback of Joseph Parker. Uh, we had in the first of that championship triple header, we had Khalid Yafai going up against Norbelto Jimenez. Yafai is actually the longest reigning British champion of the world right now, mm-hmm. not counting lineal. Of course, Tyson Fury would take the, uh, what would, would beat out Yafai if that was considered in this discussion. But Yafai made the fifth defense of his WBA super flyweight title against an awkward Norberto Jimenez, uh, who was undefeated for the last eight years. Um, not overly impressed by Yafai. I, to be honest, haven't heard much about him before. I guess they weren't making too much noise with him, at least that I could hear in the States. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have any take on Yafai's performance and his... Uh, his standing at 115 overall? I mean, you know, he's one of those guys, right? He comes from one of those fighting families, kind of like the Russells, all the all the brothers are top amateurs and, you know, turning into top pros with him leading the way. And he's definitely a very skilled fighter. Like, you can see that he has that deep amateur background. It shows. Um, he has some pop, but uh, not a ton, you know, just the appropriate amount, I guess, to keep opponents honest. Um but does kind of strike me a bit as one of those guys who does almost everything well, but nothing exceptionally well, you know? Um, And he was in against, uh, you know, to be fair, a guy who I feel like is difficult to look good against. Um, You know, Jimenez has a very awkward style, rangy, uh, moves in a weird way, almost kind of like giraffe-like a little bit, um, you know, but, but, but good, good at what, what he does and, and things like that. But yeah, I mean, the, the real question with Yafai is like with uh, DeZon uh, or Eddie Hearn inking a pact with Juan Francisco Estrada, it's like, can he compete with that level at the division? And I mean, I think he's worthy of being in those fights, but I don't see him having a chance of really winning them. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say 115 pounds uh, is definitely one of the hottest divisions in the sport, uh, probably one of the divisions that is not as talked about as it should be. El Gallo Estrado, Estrada, excuse me, uh, Srisiket Sorong Desai and their two fight series so far have produced terrific action. Two of the best fighters pound for pound in the world. At least Sorong Desai was until I think he showed a bit of age in the rematch against Estrada. 
Um, but I'm I'm very I'm very happy to see DAZN taking up the slack yeah. that HBO left after HBO is doing a pretty good job. I thought of promoting the super flyweight division. Uh, we also have Kazuto Ioka who mm-hmm. won the title uh, not yeah. long ago. I, I think he won um, against Aston Polite, maybe the IBF title. I might be missing a detail, but he had an impressive victory there. He came up short in a draw against Donnie Nietes, another great fighter, pound for pound fighter. Uh, in a fight that many thought Ioka should have won. So Kazuta Ioka is definitely in that mix. But, I mean, in, in terms of where fighters lie, it seems like Yafai is more on the level of a Jerwin on Cajas than mm-hmm. uh, Estrada, Sorongbasai, Ioka, or Nietes. Mm-hmm. And that's no fault to him. It's just <laughs> there's a lot of talent in this division. Oh, yeah. Like, at the top, I mean, it's, you know, you're pretty much talking about the best of the best, like, pound-for-pound level guys, especially with Estrada and Surungbasai, I mean, I think that because he has a belt and because he is as skilled as he is, we should want to see him in those unification fights. You know, I think that against someone like Estrada, it'll be a much better fight than, uh, you know, his one on Saturday, just, you know, because of the class of opponent and, and mesh of styles and things like that. So I think he can also be in better fights than what we saw on yeah. On, on Saturday, but yeah, you'd have to against any other champion in the division or those guys you mentioned um, would have to, to put him as the B side or underdog in any of those fights. Yeah. So we'll see more Khalid Yafai. He made a, well, he made a fairly impressive statement on the zone, not, not his performance, but it was, it was a statement on the West and it got himself on the radar and got himself talked about by the commentators. So mm-hmm. So on the co-feature event of the Demetrius Andrade card in Rhode Island, we had former WBO heavyweight champion Joseph Parker making his first appearance of 2019 and his first appearance under Eddie Hearn's matchroom boxing in kind of a throwaway fight against Alex Lapai, who once challenged for a heavyweight title against Vladimir Klitschko in 2014, kind of uh, came in effectively like a punching bag for Parker. Uh, That's basically the take that i got from that fight parker was he looked good but he was looking good against a guy that was not throwing back much just covering up and eventually the referee stopped the fight in the 10th round uh did you see anything more than just a heavy bag drill <laughs> former <laughs> champion joseph parker uh that's a good way to put it i mean you know I, I, let's give some credit to to Leopai for his toughness for sure without a doubt, but I mean, yeah, it didn't have much to offer other than the occasional like haymaker right hand that missed by a mile. Um, and, 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 and that was about it in terms of resistance. The thing with Parker, I mean, in this fight, yeah, it was a heavy bag drill, like you said, but for a man of his size, the speed, the combination punching, it's impressive. And I guess for me, the biggest thing going forward you know, when you compare that to, or when you consider that compared to some like more reticent performances in the past, particularly his fight against Andy Ruiz and his loss to Anthony Joshua, is that those tools are there. And if he fights with the same level of kind of assertiveness and like positivity that he did against Leopai, easier said than done against better level of opposition. But if he can, there's a lot to like there and some things to be excited about. Yeah. Yeah. And I, uh, you know, his win over Andy Ruiz, as you mentioned, is definitely getting a lot more credit now than it did a month ago, now that Andy Ruiz is the new heavyweight champion. 
but when I asked Ruiz in the press conference after his upset win over Anthony Joshua, if he felt like Parker was a chip on his shoulder that he wanted to avenge, Ruiz really seemed disinterested. I mean, clearly he has much bigger options now. He said that he trained himself for that fight. He wasn't in the best condition. And still, it was a very close fight that some people might have thought Ruiz won. Uh, probably not going to happen in the near future as, as long as Ruiz is champion. But, I mean, it's a win that's, you know, going to look good on Parker's resume as he pursues more fights with Matchroom. I think he's just completed his first of a three-fight deal. Yeah, and I mean, I, I don't I don't see any reason why he would deserve that fight next anyway, you know? I mean, I think that this was a fine kind of, you know, I think he signed like a three-fight deal with Eddie Hearn, so this was an appropriate first fight in a way. Um, let's see him fight another top 10 contender, kind of do what Dillian White's been doing, you know, uh, just fighting ranked contender after ranked contender. Uh, of course, for White, like, he should have had that other title shot. He should have had that title shot by now. But, like, I think Parker has to do a bit of that um, and then show that he can, you know, produce a similar type of performance against a much better opponent um, before we're even talking about him against uh, any of the champions. Yeah, I mean, he lost a close fight to... Well, he lost a fight that he almost scored a comeback knockout in against Dillian White last year. But on the prospect of a rematch with Dillian White, I, I feel like Dillian White, uh, rightfully so, and Eddie Hearn just should probably strike if their next fight isn't for a title. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> it's, uh, I, I think he probably is the longest reigning uh mandatory that hasn't been given a title shot at least in the modern era just it befuddles me how the sanctioning bodies keep sidestepping the guy and he's you know he's fighting tough opposition Derek Chisora Joseph Parker uh he's a he's a deserving challenger I mean he's he might not be a challenger that would take the title from Deontay Wilder uh but he's definitely someone who deserves that opportunity um yeah, yeah. And I mean, like, he's fighting Oscar Rivas next. Like, who in White's position is lining up to fight Oscar Rivas? No one. Like, he's a tough guy. Olympic background. Like, a good yeah. Um, So, you know, I was almost going to say that, like, Parker, uh, a good sort of next fight for him would be against an Oscar Rivas type, you know? Like, that would be an appropriate, like, second fight for him. Maybe the loser of White, Rivas? Yeah. yeah. Rivas, you know, he might surprise us. Oscar Dillian White wore down, down the stretch against Joseph Parker. Uh, and we know that Rivas is a very durable uh, fighter who comes on hard down the stretch as he did against Brian Jennings. Yeah. Honestly, another fight that I'd be interested in is if, uh, like, David Allen knocks out David Price, as we probably all expect him to. Uh, he's on a nice winning streak. Um, you know, that could be uh, that could be an interesting uh, an interesting second fight, especially if they wanted to put him on a uh, on a on a matchroom card in the UK. Mm. Both interesting fights for Joseph Parker down the line, who's definitely an athletic heavyweight, but as you mentioned, one that needs to uh, exert himself more in, in some fights as uh, he failed to do against Anthony Joshua and in an effort that I really think he could have made uh, a much closer fight if he put a little more of oh, yeah. himself in there. I think he was very reticent to engage Joshua and you know, if they ever fought again, not saying they would, but it might <laughs> might be a drastically different outcome because of the aura of invincibility being lifted from Joshua in June. True. Absolutely. So, yeah. The main event was featuring the hometown hero Demetrius Andrade, 2008 Olympian for the United States. Andrade made the second defense of his WBO middleweight title against Maciej Suleski, 
We'd previously given Danny Jacobs a very lively competitive scrap last year. You know, I think this is the second fighter that Andrade's uh, completely dominated who's given top-level opposition, such as Danny Jacobs and Billy Joe Saunders, uh, mm. tough, good fights. I mean, Andrade dominated Arthur Akavov, who gave Billy Joe Saunders, albeit uh, not in the best shape of his life, a very tough fight when they faced off years back. Macy of Suleski, I've always been impressed by him, especially against Danny Jacobs. And Andrade scored a knockdown in the first round and just dominated the entire fight, near shutout victory. Yeah, and honestly, Alden, I know you've been beating the drum for uh, um, Andrade to, you know, kind of step in um, in front of Golovkin uh, in terms of the Canelo sweepstakes, and, and you made a lot of good points about that. So I almost want to throw it back to you right away and, and ask, like, at this point, like, is don't you find it frustrating, the narrative that is, just, like, the, the singular narrative for every Demetrius Andrade fight? It's like can we not find anything else to talk about with this guy's performance, you know? And I, and I feel like it, it, it's a, it, it, it's a disservice to him and what he did in the ring, especially against Suletsky. Um, and so, yeah, I'm just kind of curious about that of just like, what, what do you think about how like people are talking about him in the aftermath of this? It's, it's like the same thing over and over and over again. Yeah. I don't, I don't appreciate a lot of his, uh, his critics who claim he's the next Rigondeaux and, and think he's just too boring and, and too, uh, too unorthodox and just not pleasant to watch. And they're not entirely wrong. I mean, he's definitely an acquired taste, but I feel like people just don't give him as much of a chance as they should. I mean, there's just, there's a lot to appreciate with his approach, although it is somewhat taken as a, <laughs> what I've seen written as interpretive dance between <laughs> him and some of his opponents. I mean, he does some unorthodox things in the ring, but he's a very tall, long middleweight, 73 and a half inch reach that knows how to use every inch of that and knows how to control a fight. And he doesn't make fights close. And, you know, I want to see him up against someone who could potentially uh, force him to show new dimensions of his style if they're if they're able to. I mean, this guy is a very talented middleweight and definitely one of the most underrated that I've seen uh, in recent years. Uh, and there, it's, it's clear that Triple G should not pursue this fight if he's smart <laughs> about the rest of his career. Uh but you never know. I mean, if if Canelo Alvarez chooses to move up to 175 and face Kovalev, as we've been hearing negotiations about <laughs> up until this day, uh, Triple G might have to take on another nothing opposition, uh, or he might be stuck with Demetrius Andrade. Hopefully, DAZN doesn't blow him, uh, blow his contract on that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think. I think at this stage, that's. I think that always would have been a tough fight for Golovkin stylistically, um, especially now. Um, yeah, you know the thing about the Suleski fight that really stood out to me is just the the defensive movement. You know, the the upper body movement, the way he was making him miss. I mean, you know, this is not some bum he was fighting, right? Like this guy, world rank. Well, he was double WBO number one contender. He yeah. gave Jacobs a hell of a fight, like you said. I mean, that was impressive. Like that was, it was almost like watching a video game or something like the way he was making him miss so obviously. And you see few guys who have the combination of, you know, quick feet and reflexes in their upper body to dodge punches like that. And then to kind of like create weird angles, I think on offense a little bit and Andrade, like, you know, he was inconsistent. I mean, that's kind of normal with him. Um, he had stretches where he simply just didn't throw enough. He got, 
you know, some moments where he tried to get a bit too cute or play to the crowd. But at the same time, I mean, he really outclassed Suletsky, and that was impressive. Yeah, I mean, he showed he was a class above one of the better middleweights in the world. So I don't think he has much more to prove, really, um, at, at 160 before people start demanding that he fight good fighters, uh, or the best fighters, rather, like Canelo Alvarez, depending on how much longer Canelo stays at 160. Yeah. Uh, it's no secret that Canelo is at least eyeing a move up to 168. I think it talked many by surprise in the recent past, at least since the last podcast we've done, that there's actually been serious talks of him going up against WBO light heavyweight champion of the world, Sergey Kovalev, in a light heavyweight fight. Not sure if that would be fought at a catch weight, but if they do get it on, um, apparently the negotiations aren't going to be easy because Kovalev has a mandatory against Anthony Yard, who's already reported to be promised a seven-figure payday for that. So they'd have to pay the mandatory Yard some step-aside money um, and Canelo's offer would have to reflect that, of course. And so far, I don't think it has. There's been some. There's, sent, there's been some unsuccessfully reported initial lowball offers from Canelo's side to Kovalev. Uh, we'll see how that turns out. It would definitely be a fascinating fight. But I mean, I, I, Canelo's fighting like a guy, or he's he's being managed like a guy that has nothing left to prove at 160. It's like, come on, you got you got Andrade to unify the division. Something you were saying is your goal to do. And then you got triple G to just kind of put the icing on the cake and put any doubters to bed about the first fight or the second fight, both of which could have easily went triple G's way. So, yeah. I mean, I understand Canelo wants to make history fight at 168, 175, uh, become potentially a four division world champion. But <laughs> I, I mean, does he have to do it right now? <laughs> I mean, fluctuating up and down the scales can't be good. No, uh, no. And honestly, the like Canelo Kovalev is just almost like too weird for me to wrap my head around. Like yeah. I've heard it, I'm aware of it, but it like, it just like doesn't compute as reality to me, yeah. you know? Like I actually, I, I, while you were talking, I was just perusing Chris Mannix's uh, Twitter profile because he's pretty plugged in with all that DAZN stuff, obviously. Um, and he tweeted earlier today, not that long ago, uh, Kovalev plans to move forward with the yard fight per source while his team will be ready for, quote, more serious negotiations, unquote, if Kovalev successfully defends his title in August. So, okay. um, you know, we've seen Oscar De La Hoya and, and, and his ill kind of bluster and spout a lot of shit. And honestly, <laughs> like, maybe this was partly that. Maybe, maybe it'll happen down the road, like you said. Um, but yeah, it definitely doesn't need to happen now for all the reasons you stated and also because it's just so weird and out of left field. It is uh, weird, and it's it's weird enough that you wouldn't imagine it get getting done on a two month notice because Canelo is scheduled to fight September fourteenth, I believe, is the date. Sometime in September, he's locked in on that date, and to promote a Canelo Kovalev fight on two months notice wouldn't really make much sense. No. Uh, but at the same time, would promoting Canelo Triple G three on two months notice be the best option they have? They've given the first two fights plenty of time to uh, be be promoted to marinate in the process, so to speak. Uh, and now if he was thinking Demetrius Andrade, that would be two months after uh, Andrade's most recent title defense going 12 rounds against uh, Masia Suliski. So I'm not really sure who Canelo is going to fight in September now that I think of it. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm with you, it, you know, with this Kovalev development and uh, all the things you just stated, it's like, 
you know, I hope we're not in the situation where we find ourselves with like a sort of different version of the Rocky Fielding fight, you know, and then Canelo starts to do these like, you know, one great fight, one absolute trash fight and then kind yeah. of alternates that way. So that's the fear. Um, but like you said, the time, the clock is ticking to like effectively promote a high profile, good matchup. I mean, the good thing about Golovkin and Canelo having a third fight in that regard is that the history is known. Um, they're both big enough names independently. We're bringing them together on short notice. Even if you don't have a chance to pull up all the promotional stops, people are going to be interested in the third fight um, to a certain extent, at least. So, yeah, I, I don't know, man. It's it's very it's very confusing. It's it's a bit peculiar. I think for Andrade, though, um, I'm a bit skeptical of this narrative that like he needs to score some big booming first round knockout to suddenly like get everyone demanding yeah. in that fight. Like he's already proven he's one of like the three best middleweights in the world. You know, like we know he deserves to be in that fight. Like to to me, I'm almost of the mind that just. If you can't get those fights, just keep doing what Eddie's laid out. Defend your title. Do your thing. Eventually, there's nowhere to hide, and either they duck you and move up, and then you go collect all the belts yourself. I mean, that would suck, but I, I just don't, I just don't see there being some magic solution to all of a sudden people cluing in and being like, "Oh, we need to see Canelo Andrade." You know what yeah, I mean? And, and for those who compare him to Guillermo Rigondeaux, I don't really see the similarity there because Rigondeaux, before he fought Lomachenko, was barely ever fighting. And yeah. Demetrius Andrade, although he was inactive in the past under prior management, he's now very active under Eddie Hearn, as anyone would be under Eddie Hearn. That's why yeah. I, you know I, I hope Eddie Hearn racks in more of these more of these talented fighters that haven't yeah. had a chance to fight as often as they should because you know he gives them fights. And as we saw with Andrade, he's you know, giving him two good fights. Yeah. Seems like he's giving him what the fans want. Yeah. Uh, at least the fans that give him a chance. So we'll see how Andrade's career progresses. I think the September date for Canelo is is start is somewhat pressing and getting probably Eric Gomez is probably getting a little angsty yeah. to see who's gonna fill in those shoes for September. Uh I'm not sure why they can't just prolong it until December. There's might be some contractual issue that I'm right. not aware of, but Canelo has fought in December before, most recently against Rocky Fielding. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure if two months is the uh appropriate amount of time to market the biggest cash cow in the sport against anyone else than a fighter who has everything to lose, like the level of a Rocky Fielding. <laughs> so We'll, we'll see how September plays out for Canelo and Golden Boy. But in the meantime, let's move over to the Showtime card this weekend featuring Jamal Charlo, who is the new WBC middleweight champion of the world after, yep, the new WBC middleweight champion of the world after Canelo recently became our franchise champion. So that's great. We got uh, three different sanctioning body titles for the WBC. I'm guessing that means three different sanctioning fees being paid in parallel. Uh, I wonder if it's at least a progressive tax as in the franchise champ gets to pay the most. And the <laughs> I, Well, given Canelo's net worth, I mean, that's the way it should be, right? Yeah, definitely. If the WBC really needs any more money than they're already racking in. So the WBC now has three different titles interim regular, I guess, or just WBC title and then franchise champion. The WBA has the regular and the super. Uh, the IBF is 
going to have to make more titles if they want to stay afloat. <laughs> uh, WBO might follow suit. Who, kn who knows? But the key is that Jamal Charlo, we'll talk about the main event before we talk about the undercard featuring Erickson Lubin, but Jamal Charlo is not a championship caliber fighter. I'll say that up front. Uh, he did not look that great against former contender. I didn't even know we still had the contender series, but right. apparently, apparently Brandon Adams was the champion of the contender. And, uh, you know, he, he say he he did a decent job against Jamal Charlo, but really he just exposed some more of the technical shortcomings that Charlo showed in the Korobov fight. And mm -hmm. he, you know he's a guy that, like many young fighters, especially young fighters uh, under Heyman that we see, you know he's a guy that he likes to pose in there. He yeah. <laughs> he uh, he's not very accurate with his punches. He's not able to land uh, combinations freely. Uh, he's 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 rather stiff and. Uh, you know, it's unfortunate because I think he has all the physical talents to be a very good fighter. He's very tall, long, clearly a hard hitter, huge puncher, really, uh, at least at 154. And yet we see him pull off these performances marred by inactivity in the ring and um, just just a lack of creativity and, and uh, diversity in there. And it's a shame. And there's something that's not clicking for him because someone's not lighting a match under him. Maybe Ronnie Shields might need to make it more apparent uh, mm -hmm. in training, or maybe he's just not getting tested with tough enough opposition to force him uh, to develop. But either way, it wasn't really that exciting of a fight. It wasn't that great of a performance. I don't know if you have any other opinions of it. Uh, well, first of all, I just wanted to say uh, regarding Brandon Adams. Yes. As you said, won the contender. And to make that just even a little spicier and better, beat Shane Mosley Jr. in the final. <laughs> um, so, hey, look, I have a, I kind of have a soft spot for the contender. Like, I actually love the original. Yeah. Um, Steve and, Forbes and Peter yeah. Manfredo. And <laughs> yeah. There are a lot of characters who came out of there. And, like, guys who ended up becoming, like, you know, good, credible contenders. Um, yeah, good, good, credible journeyman down the line. <laughs> yeah. We had one guy, uh, Troy Ross, who won the cruiserweight uh, mm -hmm. season, and I thought he was robbed against Juan Pablo Hernandez back in a cruiserweight title fight. Mm -hmm. So he was like a two-time Canadian. Anyway, I digress. Um, <laughs> about Charlo, I mean, honestly, you know, the Charlos, like, they're, they're like a waste of time, in my opinion. Like, I just am not interested in them at all. It's kind of yeah. like, hey, you show up, great. I see that you're gifted. All, I, I agree with all the criticisms that you just leveled against him. Um, and then it's like, okay, well, see you in six months, you know, uh, <laughs> pretty much no one of consequence and to do a lot of posturing and a lot of talking and a lot of lions only BS, you know, like they just don't really do anything for me. They don't move the needle. Um, uh, I think that it's, it's too bad because when you look at them as, uh, as athletes and, and, and some of the skills they possess, you're like, there could be a lot more there. And with Jamal, he definitely had what he's had one great performance in his career. That was the knockout of Julian Williams, which yep. is, you know, came against his best opponent uh, of his career. So yeah, maybe it is a case where he's got to fight better guys, but it's like, do I trust that these Heyman PBC guys are going to do that? No. Um, you know, should I be more optimistic about that? I don't think so based on history. Um, so Charlo is the kind of guy that I want to see against better opponents at middleweight. Like, you know, if he could cross the street and fight Andrade, I'd love to see it. If he yep. could fight uh, Danny Jacobs, if Danny can still make middleweight, I'd love to see it. Uh, but if he's, in, unless he's doing that, it's it, it, like, I hate to be harsh, but he's almost not worth talking about, you know? Uh, I mean, he's not a, 
you know, the fact that he's not a DAZN uh, matchroom fighter at middleweight. In fact, he's not a DAZN fighter because matchroom and Golden Boy both have major stakes at middleweight. It, yeah. it hurts Charlo being a PBC middleweight champion because he has very limited options to pick from. Uh, unless he continues fighting these lesser fighters in the WBC. I mean, eventually Al Heyman's going to have to make a deal with top rank. Uh, well, this is just in general. He's going to have to work better against uh, other interests in the sport. But for the middleweight division, if he wants Jamal Charlo to develop to the extent that uh, he might be capable of, he's going to have to do business with the zone. If yeah. that means golden boy, if that means, uh, if that means match room, yeah. uh, Clearly staying in his PVC niche is not going to do much for him. No. And I mean, I think that what we, what we're seeing this summer with um, DAZN and top rank doing that little trade, right. Where they're going to have hooker and Ramirez unify and, and Lomachenko and Luke Campbell yeah. fight. Like that's the kind of thing. And like, again, someone like Chris Mannix has been, you know, trumpeting that for, for a long time now listening to his podcast, like trades, you know, um, and that's the only way some of these big fights are going to get done. And at some point, and, and I agree with Mannix on this point too, uh, this has kind of become like a promo promo for his stuff, but like, <laughs> I think he makes, he makes a really good point where it's like, at some point is like, is Jamal Charlo going to demand that some of these fights get made, you know? Yeah. Um, and, or is he going to, you know, because if they don't get made and he just sits back there passively and takes these nice paydays on PBC, which is his right, defending his belt, which he didn't win in the ring. You know, he had the interim yeah. battle against lesser opposition, and he's happy doing that. That's fine, and he's allowed. But then he can't keep spouting this trash talk and, like, beating his chest and, and you know, talking about being the baddest man in the division and stuff like that and how the media are just hating on them. Like, the Charlos kind of love that narrative that the media doesn't like them. Um, and, well, I think they're just kind of ignoring them because they they haven't scored a very impressive victory in a while, and as you mentioned, they're not very active. <laughs> so, what's their really get behind? Yeah, no, true. And so, like you know, Jermel at one fifty four is lucky; he's on the right side of the street there to make good fights, and you know, he's been in against better opponents than Jamal has. Um, uh, you know, overall, I guess. But, you know, it's, it, it's, it's frustrating. It's like, you know, to Jamal, it's like, are you going to waste your whole prime? Is that because that's what you're in the process of doing right now? Yep, definitely. Uh, yeah. So as we've mentioned on the show earlier, it seems like Al Heyman fighters are given a lot of leeway from Heyman to do what they want. And one of the things that we'd have to see Jamal do, as you mentioned, is to demand the mm -hmm. future of his career be made against high level opposition. Uh, is he ready for that? That's another story based yeah. on his performance. Either he was uninspired against Brandon Adams or he just fully hasn't developed as a, uh, as a young fighter, because I don't think his performance did him any favors in getting him major consideration against the best at middleweight, which is definitely one of the best divisions in the sport. Mm -hmm. But at 154 in the undercard fight, we saw a WBC title eliminator featuring Erickson Lubin, who is continuing to rebound from his first round knockout defeat to Jermel Charlo in 2017. He scored an impressive fourth round stoppage over an overmatched Frenchman, Zakaria Atu. Uh, 
wasn't in with a big puncher, wasn't in with a guy who was on his level. Nonetheless, looked very impressive and uh, just controlled the action, but didn't answer a lot of the questions that still loom about him. And that's how well can he take a punch and how well can uh, he react to punches after a first round knockout loss a couple years ago. Uh, he's faced two light punching fighters in this this year against Ishe Smith, who is towards the end of his career, uh, and Zakaria too, who is just not a big puncher. Mm-hmm. Um, but he looked good against them, and he might get a big fight because of it. And I think that is a risk if he proceeds uh, with risk at 154 because, well, there's a lot of dangerous fighters in the division. Yeah. I mean, the thing with Lubin is he's, you know, undeniably talented, supremely talented. Uh, he's powerful. He has a great amateur background, all that kind of stuff. He's only 23, though, so I, I don't think that they need to necessarily rush his, his rebuild. I know this was a title eliminator, but, um, you know, it almost reminds me a bit of what we've had to do here with Stephen Butler uh, after his knockout loss to Brandon Cook. And I think that you know, despite having a lofty ranking in a sanctioning organization, they have time on their side, you know, because we're not really going to learn anything about Lubin that we don't know until he gets his chin checked again, you know, by a guy who can actually punch. Um, and and that's a big question mark, obviously, that, that still remains. I think that, like, of his three fights since the uh, Charlo loss, uh, the only one that, that means, you know, anything relatively is the Ishe Smith fight. Um, it was an accomplishment to become yeah. the first man to stop Smith. Absolutely. Even, even a 40 year old Smith, because this is a guy who even, you know, uh, obviously losing more than he won the, that kind of last third of his career, you know, good performances against Tony Harrison and Julian Williams, uh, in two defeats prior to Lubin. So the way Lubin dismantled him was honestly a bit shocking. Um, mm. I think we, we, we kind of suspected it was a possibility, but, you know, Ishe is like the ultimate gate, gatekeeper slash veteran, right? So it was still it was still a bit jarring to see, and definitely a feather in uh, in Lubin's cap. I, I I like the fact that he fought in February and then again in June. I'd like to see him fight at least twice more this year. I don't think we'll see more than twice more, knowing how PBC operates. But um, I just think he should kind of keep his sort of steady pace going with at least another two fights this year and really only make a title run next year. That that's my personal opinion. Yeah. I, uh, I, I don't think he should be in a title fight there in 2019. He should fight, uh, Austin trout. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's, uh, the perfect low risk, uh, non power punching opposition that he could face, uh, or Terrell Gauthier, if I'm pronouncing his last name correctly. Yeah. who was in a controversial draw with Trout earlier this year, I believe. Uh, even Brian Castaño, who almost beat Erzlandi Lara in a very exciting draw uh, mm. and has now been stripped of the WBA regular title for not signing to fight Michael Soro quick enough. Uh, Castaño is kind of free of opposition. Um, he's mostly a Argentinian fighter, hasn't made too many appearances in the States. He was impressive against Lara, but... Uh, you know, I'd like to see that fight if that can get made. I, th- I think that would be, be yeah. a good fight because Castaño is is dangerous and he's very skilled, and I think I, we can I, get quite a few questions answered from Lubin. I'd honestly worry about Lubin against Castaño. Like, I yeah. I think he could be, get outboxed too. Yeah, I think it'd be a good fight, but 
I, you know, Castaño can punch a little bit and he did really well against Lara who, you know, despite being in the back end of his career is still very much a master boxer. Right. So um, that, that, that's definitely a fight to eye, but you know, just kind of like looking down the list of contenders, like, you know, you mentioned that he wouldn't, uh, Castaño didn't sign quickly enough to fight Michelle Soro. That's also someone I would keep Lubin far away from right now. Soro is a really tough French fighter. He scored some nice knockout wins. He's really, really good. He might um, be facing Arislandi Lara in the near future from what I hear. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, you know, interestingly, just kind of like looking down the list on, uh, on, on box rec, uh, someone who dropped down to junior middleweight uh, for his last fight and had worked his way down in the previous one is uh, Gary Spike O'Sullivan. I don't know yeah. emotionally and network wise how that would go, but I see almost someone like that as maybe a more realistic, you know, O'Sullivan can punch for sure, but I mean, limitations in terms of athleticism and speed, um, but also a guy who's been in with some good opposition and in some high profile fights. Uh, that could be a direction perhaps, but I also like the Trout Gachet eventually getting there, maybe in, in his last fight of 2019 and like a December fight could be good. Um, yeah. I don't know. I mean, is your instinct that they're going to try to maybe move him faster than we think he should be moved? I'm not sure. I, I, I don't know. And uh, I, I mean, he's the fact that he was on the co-feature of the, the Charlo fight, they're definitely trying to market him. Uh, yeah. He was non-televised against, uh, at least conventionally non-televised against Ishe Smith. Uh, he wasn't on the regular broadcast there. But, I mean, he made some noise with that victory, and I think he was rewarded for his effort with the, a two-fight in the Eliminator. And uh, what I would hope to see not happen is that uh, he gets the winner of Harrison Charlo, too. I think he has to prove himself a little bit more before he's ready for either of those guys. Although, you know, in retrospect, if Harrison didn't get the decision against Charlo that very few people thought he deserved, I think that would actually be a perfect fight for Lubin going forward. You know, a guy that's skilled but not a big enough puncher to uh, probably check his chin. Uh, yeah, it, it would be an interesting fight. Uh, yeah. but, but definitely Charlo, I don't know if psychologically and physically he's ready for a rematch um, yeah. or deserving of one. Yeah, yeah, true. And yeah, we'll see what happens with the Harrison fight. But yeah, I agree, Tony Harrison, um, while, while a good fighter, you know, also a bit vulnerable perhaps too. And, and, and Lubin could, could, could take advantage of that. But even if we were to fight someone like Harrison again, I don't see that as being his next fight. Or at least I don't think that should be like his, you know, if it were possible. Like, yeah should be his next fight regardless he's 23 years old you know like don't if he's as good a prospect as you say he is do it the right way yep so we'll see more of erickson lubin down the line pbc high-ranked junior middleweight prospect uh so you have some action you'd like to share from quebec i think it is right yeah, uh, there are actually uh, a few uh, few things going on in Canada today. Just a couple of different things worth mentioning. Um, you know, one one uh, just a, an isolated fight that I that I do want to mention because um, it, it sort of relates to the welterweight division um, is uh, Custio Clayton, who you know American fans might remember was Terence Crawford's mandatory challenger for about a minute um, before he fell out with Eye of the Tiger and. Uh, you know, uh, declined, uh, well, we don't really know the circumstances, but I think was offered a three-fight deal with ESPN. Mm -hmm. 
and the third of which would be against Crawford. You know, one was going to be against uh, Mean Machine there, Kavalaskis, mm. um, and, and and for whatever reason, didn't take it. I mean, it was a six-figure six-figure deal, but you know, that's his prerogative. So he switched promoters again. Um, uh, he's with Lee Baxter, who's out of uh, Toronto, Ontario, and uh, he's had two fights since. The first was like just a very much a you know dust off the cobwebs against Chop Chop Corley. But this recent performance was a was a very good one against Johan Perez, who's been an interim uh, title holder, I believe. Um, Clayton dominated. Um, there was a knockdown ruled against him that was clearly a slip, so a, a poor poor call by the official. But you know he he outclassed this guy and moved to seventeen and zero. And I, I I think that by the end of the year, potentially in his next fight, could be eyeing someone in the top 10 at welterweight and for a homegrown Canadian fighter, like he is someone who I do believe can be a top 10 fighter at welterweight, just talent wise. Um, and in terms of his technical abilities. So, um, I'm hoping that he fights again, maybe in September and sets up a bigger fight for, you know, December, um, kind of thing. And so I think Castillo is a guy worth keeping an eye on, um, as someone who, you know, has a bit more flexibility in terms of who he can fight. At, at welterweight being with a Canadian promoter. Um, uh, he's, he's a very, very good, uh, good fighter. I'm not sure if you've ever had a chance to see him Alden, or if you've followed his career much at all, but he, um, he's a talented individual without a doubt. Yeah. I haven't really had too much of a chance, but I see he's the fifth ranked welterweight by the IBF right now. Yeah. Uh, he's kind of a fringe contender according to the WBA, but you know, at 17 fights, it seems like a little early to be taking on some of the best at welterweight, considering Crawford and and Spence. Do you do you think he uh, chose to direct his career away from Crawford just out of uh, realization that he might not be ready for a fighter like that at this stage in his career? Or, that's, uh, a, that's a good question. I mean, he's he he's a hard guy to kind of get a line on. Uh, yeah, very you know, those of us in Canada right now are kind of waiting on bated breath for Kawhi Leonard, you know, to make a decision for the NBA. Uh, he he's similar in that sense, you know, a bit of a closed book, um, private guy. So I don't know. I mean, you know, he is thirty one. Um, he doesn't have a lot of mileage uh, in terms of his pro career. hasn't taken any real significant punishment whatsoever. Um, he's an Olympian, uh, came one controversial loss away from getting a medal. So he was a very, very good amateur, six time Canadian amateur champion as well. Mm. So, um, yeah, I, I think that there's a bit more wisdom in his, in him taking this course than people in Quebec are willing to admit because he was with Yvonne Michel and then I, the tiger and had falling out with falling out, fallings out with both of them. So, um, and they're the two biggest promoters in Canada, right? And I think that for a lot of the media in Quebec, they do have a hard time maybe acknowledging and realizing that for an Anglophone from Eastern Canada to move to a French-speaking city with his entire family is not just something that's easily done, you know? Yeah. Um, and I do think that there was maybe, you know, adjusting to life in Montreal was maybe not the easiest. Um, and, uh, and and I don't think that should be overlooked or dismissed either. So he's moved to Ottawa now. He's close to Toronto. He's with his trainer. You know, it's it, things are, I think, shaping up nicely for him. And I'd be happy if even if he got in two or three more times this year, just steadily building his level of opposition. He's ranked in almost every sanctioning body to a certain degree. Um, he's picked up a slew of minor titles over his last handful of fights. Um, and, and just get that activity. I think he needs a year of real sustained activity 
But then skill-wise, when he is ready to step up, like to me, I think he beats Kavalowskis, no problem. Yeah. Uh, that's my opinion, you know? I think eyeing a guy like a Ray Robinson would be a really good fight for him. Because I think Ray he, Robinson, Josh Kelly. Yeah. Uh, Sergey Lippin yet, maybe? He's right behind him in the IBF rankings. Absolutely. I think that I, I'd say get him another fight in Canada um, against a Perez-type opponent. Um, and then he'd be more than ready for any one of those guys. And then if he manages to win one of those fights handily, then we can start talking about the um, uh, the, the, the champions or, or, content- or higher-ranked contenders at least. But I- I'm happy to see him just staying active and on a trajectory because he's sort of flirting with being one of our biggest wasted talents uh, in a long time. And so I really hope that he can make the most of this next like three-year stretch really um, and, and stay really active, like at least four fights a year and, and make some noise because, uh, he's very, very good. Um, so, you know, hopefully Castillo, uh, can just get those things outside the ring together. Cause inside the ring, he's, he's looked great every time out. Definitely. Yeah. So, uh, good performance by Castillo Clayton this past weekend, winning United's decision over Johan Perez. Any other action you'd care to share from the fight city in Canada? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, last time I was on uh, to talk about the Shawinigan card, we just mentioned that there was a, uh, a card in uh, Thetford Mines that was going to be two uh, two weeks later featuring even some of the guys who fought in Shawinigan, right? So they were on two weeks after that, like Lex and Metzia um, was one of those guys who we discussed last time. And, you know, it was, um, uh, it was, it was a good little card. Um, more like stay busy action for some of, uh, some of the prospects for Eye of the Tiger, but, um, you know, to hark back to what we talked about last time I was on, Metzia went the full six rounds for the first time in his career. Mm. First time he's actually been extended past the second. And so that was great to see great learning experience for a guy who, you know, you mentioned last time you liked uh, his level of activity, uh, to see that from a young fighter and yep. to, get, to get his first six rounder and to go the distance, uh, is good. And, you know, he was against a guy, Yair Senya, who eight and eight and three now with two draws, six knockouts, never been stopped in any of his losses. Like for a 20 year old in Metsuya, that's a good opponent to be fighting in your first six rounder and only your, uh, your fifth fight. Right. So that's an incredible, at that stage, if you have a winning record, I consider that a, (laughs) (laughs) so a lot to like there from Lexan. And, uh, the good thing about his fight is that it showed there's some obvious things for him to work on, you know, like he, he needs to be more consistent with the jab, uh, but all the tools are there. Um, and, and so that was really positive. Uh, Avery Martin Duval, who also fought two weeks prior, scored his second first round stoppage in a row, the 18 year old, uh, former Canadian amateur standout. So that was good for him The you know, things keep rolling. Um, and then I just want to highlight, uh, three prospects, the three, uh, uh, two of them are from Kazakhstan, one from Russia. So the first one would be Nurzat Sabirov. Hmm. Uh, this was a bit unfortunate because I feel like this fight was just kind of like a bit of a waste of time. Like he's the, the golfing class was just too great. Like this is a guy who at 25 with his deep amateur background is is ready to step up to much better competition. And you've seen that with some of his previous opponents, like Reynoso and Montoya uh, previous to Toth were uh, much better uh, opponents. And maybe it was a case of, you know, just difficulty at the time of year getting a guy over, but, you know, as someone with a Hungarian father, I, I, I feel okay saying that whenever we bring Hungarians to Canada as opponents, they don't last very long. Um, so uh, <laughs> Sabarov is, is, a, is a very talented switch hitter. 
Um, great body puncher, a really, really fun fighter who uh, can make some noise at super middleweight very soon. Um, and then, in my opinion, uh, we have two of the top 10 best prospects in all of boxing right here in Montreal, uh, Sadradin Akhmedov and Artem Oganisian. These are, mm. these are names people should take note of. Um, Sadradin uh, was coming off a hand injury. He had a fight back in Kazakhstan where he hurt his hand. He looked great in blasting out uh, Daniel Vega Koda, who has a decent little record and has fought in Canada a few times. He went uh, the distance, I believe, with uh, Clovis. Or no, it was uh, Suleiman Sissoko, who he lost to in the fifth round, but a French Olympian, right? And, and Akhmedov blasted him out in the first. So that's like an interesting little point of comparison. Um, and Sadradin, you know, he's a guy who won well over 200 amateur fights. He's only 20 years old. Uh, he decided to turn pro young and early, earlier than some guys typically do from Kazakhstan. We're lucky to have him here. And this guy, he's just gifted, you know. Uh, he's got a future world champion written all over him, uh, as does Artem Oganisian. And you can see their records are quite similar, you know, in terms of number of fights, number of knockouts. Oganisian's only 19. Um, and, uh, and, and he scored his second, uh, his second win of the year after going 10 rounds mm. in his previous fight to win a minor title against a very game and very, very tough Damian Sosa, who, uh, is a young Mexican fighter who, you know, would be a tough out, uh, for anyone. And, and Ogunistian just absolutely dominated him over 10 rounds, but a uh, very game guy. So, you know, these are two blue chip talents and I would put them up in terms of, you know, young talent in a stable as as good a young a pair of young fighters as almost anyone top rank matchroom have it in that class you know i'm not saying these guys are you know they're they're not as advanced as a tiafimo lopez obviously despite being similar age but in mm -hmm. terms in terms of raw talent like they're in that conversation in my opinion um and and could be quite good. So, you know, it's kind of cool to see them on some of these local shows because I feel like they're going to, they're going to outgrow them pretty soon. Um, so, so yeah, very exciting times for, for some of the, uh, the guys who have decided to make Montreal home, who, uh, who moved here from, from Eastern Europe or, uh, or other, other parts of the world. And, you know, we, we welcome them with open arms and they make our boxing scene all the best. I think it's only a matter of time before one of them develops to the point where they're taking their title on the road and, and eventually they come back home and make a homecoming title defense in the Bell Center. <laughs> That's the dream, man. That's the dream. We've been, we've been waiting for fights like that for a while now with Pascal and Butte having, you know, well, Pascal's still hanging around, but you know what I mean? Like kind of gone yeah. off of the sunset. So these are the guys who could definitely uh, do that. So I hope for them that we see them, uh, a good three times in the fall into the winter, at least because I have a tiger after this card, they kind of take most of July and August on, and then they ramp back up in September. So um, I expect a bit of a quieter summer on the Montreal fight scene or Quebec fight scene. But I think that, uh, you know, we should be seeing some, some significant step ups uh, from them, maybe chasing another minor belt or a youth title or something like that uh, in the fall. Mm. All right, so that just about wraps it up for episode 25. Thanks for being with us tonight, Zach. Oh, it was a pleasure, man. Have fun. Yep, and we will conclude this podcast with an interview with undefeated welterweight prospect Dusty Harrison, who fights out of the D.C. area and is making his next appearance on the undercard of Teofimo Lopez on July 19th. Besides that, that just about wraps it up. I hope to hear from you guys next time.
We're here with Dusty Harrison, undefeated prospect out of the Washington, D.C. area. How are you today, Dusty? Doing great. Getting ready for July 19th at MGM, so feeling good, feeling strong. Excellent, excellent. All right, well, we're going to start from the very beginning, so can you tell us a little bit about how you got started in the sport? Uh, my dad uh, taught me how to fight. I was, I was, I don't know, I, as soon as I could stand up, you know, he had me throwing punches, uh, had me working out when I was two, three, four, five years old, and um, I did an exhibition when I was six. Mm. Uh, first amateur fight when I was eight, so you know, just and from there on, I just never stopped. So, great. <laughs> I mean, the younger you start, it's <laughs> <Yeah>. typically <laughs> the best fighters in the world. So, you've had a very long amateur career. I'm gonna guess you've had over 200 fights about 200. as an amateur. Yeah, I had about 200 amateur fights, and then I probably doubled the amount of exhibitions because <laughs> it was hard to get some, uh, some opponents for all the shows. So. So, given your amateur career, I know I've seen you box Erickson Lubin. I know you fought uh, Anthony Sims. Uh, where are some of your best victories against some of the top pros today? Those are two that you mentioned. <laughs> um, uh, let's see. So, I remember, I can't remember everybody. I remember at the 2012 Olympic trials, uh, there were seven names of people that I beat. I can't, I can't remember all of them. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, you know, those, those are good ones to see people like that, you know, doing good. Uh, I fought Patrick Harris and the amateurs, Kenneth Sims. Um, Antonio Russell. Um, God, I'd be going on all day. Uh, <laughs> O'Shanty Foster. Yep. Um, uh, yeah, there's a lot of them. I could keep going. <laughs> yep, 200 fights. <laughs> certainly a lot. Uh, so what inspired you to turn pro? Oh, 2011. But uh, the reason why I did, though, is because... Yeah, I was going to ask. I, um, at the, the, at, when Sugar Ray Leonard won the Olympics... And, you know, I wasn't around, but if you yeah. ask anyone from that, yeah, if you ask now. anyone from that time period, yeah. everyone knew, everyone knew. And then right now, if I was to go to someone on the street and ask them who was on the 2016 Olympic, uh, you know, boxing team, yeah, maybe somebody might say Shakur Stevenson, yeah. maybe, <laughs> <Or Dave and. laughs> um, you know. But uh, other than that, nobody. It just it doesn't hold the same weight as it as it did. And um, even me right now. I can't name everybody on the 2016 Olympic team, and yeah. and that's kind of sad. But I follow Stop. boxing, and and I know a lot of boxers that can't as well. It's just, it it doesn't mean the same as it did. Don't get me wrong; it's good if you win. Yeah, you know, don't it it, did, it opened so many doors for Shakur getting a silver medal. But yeah, for someone who just goes and just does okay at the Olympics, and then um, you know, it doesn't it doesn't mean as much. And I, you know, my thought process was that by the time these guys go through the trials and turn pro, I might be 10 and 0, 12 and 0, and I was so. Yeah. So what are the kind of things that you learned uh, developing as a professional that you didn't get as an amateur? Um, it's a different pace. It definitely is a different pace. Um, um, you know, the four-rounders, they are a little fast. Once you start to get six and eight, you can really slow down. You can think, and you can figure your opponent out more. And um, it's a different type of conditioning. It's it's a little less explosive, and it's a, yeah. it's it's more endurance. It's longer. Um, it's just a lot. I learned a lot about cutting weight. You know, definitely, because in the amateurs, you know, you might have to make weight every day for a week. So you're not, you don't want to cut that much weight initially. Yeah. So you kind of stay a little bit where you walk around us. And then in the pros, you get that 30. It, it's a lot. It, it's a lot of the, the training aspect is really what's different. And then going to the fight, um, everyone hits hard with those little 8-ounce gloves. And then now I fight in 10-ounce now that I've gotten bigger. But, yeah, yeah. everyone hits hard. So. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, okay, so let's fast forward a little bit in your pro career to your fight against Mike Dallas, uh, probably best fighter you ever faced. What did you take out of that fight? That um, uh, How did you grow from that fight? Again, um, and you know, this is something I've never even 
said because I don't I don't make excuses. But yeah. again, I said one of the biggest difference between the pros and the amateurs is kind of the preparation for the fight, mm-hmm. and um, I didn't prepare for that fight. Uh, I had was only the coach that worked my corner. He was I was with him for two weeks. Mm-hmm. I trained for that fight for two weeks. Um, I was mm-hmm. sparring partners with Canelo, and uh, at the time there's two other sparring partners or. There's always someone else sparring him. So yeah. the most I ever got rounds with him straight was five rounds. And uh, mm-hmm. I wasn't sparring anyone else. So, And there was no coach out there with me. Um, and I was there for six weeks before the fight. So for six weeks, I'm kind of just shadow boxing a little, hitting the bag and um, sparring four to five rounds at a time. And uh, mm-hmm. don't get me wrong, it's great work with Canelo. But if I could do it again, I would have left sooner than I did and uh, focused on my own fight at least for four weeks. Yeah. <laughs> at least. Um but yeah, you know that's kind of what I took away from it. It's just uh, you know, you know, came away with a draw. Uh, you know, so you live and you learn. Yeah. Um, so I might be a sensitive subject, but um, could you talk about the inactivity after the Mike Dallas fight? Uh, honestly, um, it was me and the promoter I was with at the time, Rock Nation. Yeah. We kind of had a different idea of the direction that my career should go. So when certain fights came to the table that you know i wanted they wanted to go a different direction and then it was just a lot of verbal disputes and then eventually we um you know we 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 split in a i don't i'm pretty sure i can't say all the details but that that's much mm-hmm. i can say okay. you know um yeah we split and then um from there you know so i'm on and then, uh yeah just it, for for the career part that's what happened and then when you're not getting fights and when you're going to the gym you know every day mm-hmm. um and you're not making any money, it kind of deters you away from going to the gym. So after about like eight months of going to the gym every day and staying in shape, I'm like, you know what, I can miss a day. And then it came, I can miss a week. And mm-hmm. then it became, you know, I'll just wait till I get a fight. And then uh, <laughs> and then I got big, and then next thing you know, I weighed uh, 200 pounds. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, but then one day, you know, you kind of get tired of it being yeah. unhealthy. <laughs> so, so uh, um you know, I just started running and then going back to the gym. And it, it wasn't just overnight either. Yeah. You know, I would start for a week and then I would stop and then I would yeah. go back. And then eventually, though, you know, I got back and then that's when the fights came. Yeah. And, you know, now I've had two fights to come back and I have my third one coming up. So everything's working out. Yeah, you're certainly not the first fighter that's uh, suffered from inactivity due yeah. to promotional yeah. issues. You know, Mikey Garcia is a prime example. Andre yep. Ward, Manel came back sharp. Yep. Uh, yep. You mentioned your fight to cut back weight to uh get active again um what is your idea for your career trajectory down the road now that you're back at it again uh, so the first my first fight back if you look on box right it'll say that i weighed in at 170 that's mm-hmm. only because they did a same day weigh-ins okay. it was originally scheduled to be at 165 or something yeah. like that and yeah. um then my next my last fight i weighed in at 163 and i okay. could say this one will be less in a um we just haven't had a contract signed yet mm-hmm. exactly so for the weigh-in yeah for the weigh-in so yeah. um we haven't settled on the weight but it will be less and eventually i'm going to fight at 154 and campaign at junior middleweight so, okay yeah that's the goal oh any big names that you're targeting i know you know at this point when you have that layoff uh and yeah. i know this is kind of cliche and kind of typical to say that i'd fight anyone but yeah. th- that is the truth um you know okay. uh you know i think um you know maybe the wbo is a good route to go Jaime Munguia. Yeah, I don't know how much longer will be there. It'll become vacant, you know. And that's me That's me talking to the promoter, thinking about, of course, the easiest route. And then once you get that belt, then you can go after, you know, kind of you kind of bring something to the table mm-hmm. to get the fights. Because right now, if I was like, hey, let me fight Charlo, let me fight Gerald, everybody's going to be like, well, why you? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's why you. And uh, don't get me wrong, I think I can fight him. I think mm-hmm. I can be in the ring with him. But 
I need something to bring to the table. I need a belt, a ranking, or something. So after this fight, I want to get my ranking back, yep. uh, work my way, get a regional title, get a title, and do it, you know. And, and do the right uh, way. Yeah. So uh, July 19th, you'll be on the undercard of Shakur Stevenson. I want to say that No, no, Teofimo Lopez. Teofimo Lopez. Yes. And I want to say that will be on ESPN. <laughs> yes. Do uh, you have any hope on being on the undercard for that? They usually show a lot of the undercard Yeah, I believe, I'm, I believe, as far as I know, I'm going to be on the stream, the yep. ESPN Plus stream. So uh, I'm happy about that. Uh, I believe I have eight rounds on there. And um, I do know... You know, we haven't settled on opponent. We've talked about a couple of names, and mm-hmm. the biggest thing that they were uh, wanted was somebody durable. Yep. So I plan on getting some good rounds in. Yep. So I think you've mentioned the name Leonardo Tyner. Yeah, that name got mentioned to me today. Mm-hmm. Um, so if if it happens, it happens. That's cool with me. Um, I don't like I said at this point, I'm, I'm happy. I'm ready to fight anyone. So yeah. if they told me Deontay Wilder, I say he's gonna make <laughs> one fifty four. <laughs> but but no, at this point, you know, I I just love the fight. So yeah, well, I look forward to seeing you. Thank you. Wish you the best of luck. That was Dusty Harrison. And that just about sums it up for the 25th episode of the Fight City Podcast.